Welcome to this week's episode of Escape from Plan A. Uh, we are a little bit, eh, I guess we've been a little bit late the last few times, but this this week, our excuse is uh, major week, a lot of things happening, obviously, the affirmative action uh, cases, the Harvard and the UNC cases, both fo- both followed by students uh, for fair admissions. Uh, they had their hearing, I believe on Monday on Halloween. And I think it was pretty clear that there were no, there weren't a lot of surprises. Uh, everyone that has been following this is pretty much predicting that this is going to be um, uh, a, a victory for SFFA. And uh, I think what would be interesting now that it seems that the, I would say that that would be my own preferred outcome. I don't, I don't presume to speak for anyone else, but to to an extent, you could characterize this as a victory for Asian American students or Asian Americans overall. Um, so, starting from that point, I think it would just be interesting to say, okay, now that we're past the phase of this legal battle, uh, where we could safely say that the plaintiffs that are challenging the affirmative action programs that have been uh, used in part to discriminate against Asian Americans, but in part to do a lot of other things, is now secured. It might be a really good time to dig in a little bit into what actually happened or will, or we predict to happen, what the larger meaning of it is, what was this court case really about, uh, and sort of like maybe even the history and significance of affirmative action because... I think this is a much more significant ruling than just about Asian Americans. That is the sort of trigger. That's the mm-hmm. fact pattern that triggered uh, what I would say is a monumental historic review of the cons- of constitutional law in America. And so this, this goes way beyond uh, Asian Americans or Asian American students way beyond Harvard it probably goes way beyond university admissions. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 it is a, something that I think in the legal community, that uh, which I don't consider myself a part of, but the constitutional scholar community, whatever, this is a major, major historic event. Not just this one, but also the, um, the, the, the overturning of Roe. And so I know the three... So, sorry, I didn't even introduce who's on this pod uh eliza <laughs> and jess how how are you two sorry we just jumped right into it because we had a little there's a lot there's a lot to get through today can't, yeah. can't be wasting time on the formalities hey guys uh if yeah. the pod's delayed and that's that's all me guys we were going to record yesterday and i was like i we need to take notes i need to be prepared i need to read all the <laughs> and the jokes on me because i'm actually less clear on my thinking today than i was yesterday so yeah sorry no worries um where do you think we should start i mean i think uh, should we talk about the oral arguments and just kind of like what I know all three of us listened at least to significant the material portions of it. Yeah, big yeah. parts of it. I read the transcript and I and I actually oh, wow. recommend that. Uh, yeah, we'll put the links to it. It's up on the Supreme Court site anyway. Um, like if you were listening in and you couldn't like follow like who was who or something, the transcript makes that really crystal clear. So um, that was a that that was a helpful. Uh, we'll put we'll put the links to everything we uh, we cite on the in the show notes. So refer back to that if you need. Um, 
I don't know. Let's start from the big. The let's let's try like big to small, right? So big set. Big question here is what is this? What is this case? And maybe more importantly, what it isn't. Okay. Um, like we've seen a lot of reporting, a lot of uh, commentary from and non-legal. Language, it's it's fascinating how the language changes so much. Like you read New York Times and you read New Yorker, and they call it race conscious um, admissions or yeah. race conscious policies. You read, you go someplace else, and it's just racist. And I think that's where the problem is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of like opinion writers, a lot of non-legal people, not to say that, you know, uh, the rest of us do not get a say in these sorts of things or should not have an opinion. Um, It just means that the, it it just means what, what this, it just means that the signal gets muddy and it would be helpful to, to delineate what is at stake in this case. Like what is it actually ruling on and, um, and leave and get into like the broader social ramifications as a separate question. Because um, mm. I see so a lot go of big to small, big to small. Like, what okay. is this case, right? Like, what is yeah. at stake here? Um, how far okay. back are we going in terms of uh, like overturning precedent? Like, if I'm just reading mm. the reporting, it's just people really trying to distill legal language down too far and saying like this is a this is a radical revision of you know constitutional scholarship, you know. And if you get to like partisan politicking, like a conservative court is basically hijacking the country to suit its you know white uh, male Christian fascist tendencies right mm. um so there's a broad spectrum of opinion making on the subject um but that's but we're getting further and further away from what's actually being debated here okay i mean i think um like if you start out with the lawsuit itself right taken on literal terms you know it's it's a student or a set of in this case a class of students asian american students who applied to harvard and were rejected uh despite having um you know an academic record that exceeded um probably you know the average uh, okay sorry we had a little bit of an audio glitch but i was picking up where we left off so from if we start from um the you know the filing of the lawsuit by these plaintiffs i mean it is a small case in the beginning right like they're basically just going to the local federal district court right in in massachusetts and boston or whatever and saying like harvard broke the law and this is the law and the law is a series of cases stemming from 1978 starting with backy and a bunch of other things setting out sort of like the guard the, the the guidelines as to how you can run an admissions program that does factor race into their admissions decisions, but in a way that doesn't break with established law that the court has set forth in these cases, right? Because there's no like statute that sets out what affirmative action is. It's not in the constitution. So affirmative action isn't like written law in the normal sense. It's like a series of decisions and interpretations of the constitution. And what Hart, what SFFA was in the Asian American plaintiffs were alleging were was that harvard was not following that sort of like line of cases like they were they were basically had violated established law right so it's 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 like any other lawsuit this person broke the law right or or you know breached the contract or whatever it is okay 
But as that ca- can so I, this is can I interrupt you first just yeah. a little second? This has been a question on my mind for uh, for a long time actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of these are relying on like like interpretations or reinterpretations of established like Supreme Court precedent. Mm-hmm. Um, when it looks like the social debate around these kinds of issues could and maybe should be handled legislatively. Has there been some? Do you feel like there's been some drift in the in like the the uh, purpose? of like a Supreme Court ruling versus like a legislative, like a law being put on the books? Yeah. I mean, there are, there are state level laws and, Mm -hmm. and so, and, or like, for example, in California with prop, I forgot the number, but when they eliminated, you know, affirmative action, there probably, I believe were state, you know, state statutes that were governing. But of course, you know, all of that stuff has to be consistent with because remember if you are taking race into account you're sort of like you're you're engaging in very uh risky behavior uh under the constitution so you're flirting with breaking you know you're you're flirting with violating the constitutional rights uh of of the people subject to that and so what the Supreme Court decisions were really about was to say, look, however you want to implement them, if this, if you want to do it as just, you know, in Harvard's case, it's a private university, so they can do, you know, they, they don't need to, they just sort of like set out their admission standards however they want, maybe even in secret. Uh, at UC, I think, you know, they maybe had it more public or subject to state, you know, uh, state law or whatever it is. Like, however you want to set your admissions uh, policies, you know, whatever you want, statutes, not a statute, po- you know, whatever. But it has to be in line with what the Supreme Court has set out as the boundaries of what's called affirmative action, but really means like, how do you use race? How do you factor in race without violating constitutional protections, particularly under what we call the 14th Amendment? due process and equal protection clauses, if that makes sense. Mm, It's just sort of setting like ultimate, because remember the base level law in the United States is the constitution. That's the, that's the foundation. And so you cannot violate that. You can't legislate around that. And so the, the, the Supreme court is the guardian of that sort of most base level, you know, boundaries of what can and cannot be done when it comes to, uh, race conscious admissions policies. Does that make okay, sense? Okay, so the, the idea is that the Constitution already covered the core principle and laid out the law of the land. So, um, so that's already been done. It's just the Supreme Court at that point interpreting and reinterpreting it for the needs of the time. Yeah, and then so, you know, they have like a sort of foundational case like Backey that really sort of established the, the, the core doctrines. You know, like um, this is back in 1978. So the Supreme Court saying, I'm not that familiar. I'm not an expert on this. Okay. But I'm just saying that it set out the basic concepts here. We cannot have set aside quotas. You can't say we're going to set aside this many seats for black students and this many seats for white. But you can, you can use race as one of many factors. You know, it's kind of wishy-washy, right? Which is kind of a problem with it. But you can use it as one of many factors in a holistic assessment of an individual applicant. And then from there, there's other cases that arise because other, in you know, other schools um, beyond, I guess, I think Backy was in Texas, uh, beyond that 
original case, you know, they all modify their affirmative their, their affirmative action program may be a little different. And then someone will sue and then that may or may not go up to the Supreme Court, which says, okay, in this case, you know, the way they're implementing admissions is a little bit different. And so we're gonna you we're gonna rule we're gonna consider what they're doing and then analyze that against, you know, the constitution as well as what we said in Backy to see if it's all consistent. And if we need to give further guidance as to how this all works, we will. And there, and that was, uh, yeah, Grutter v. Bollinger, I think was the big, the big case. in I think 2003 that, um, sort of, uh, you know, went, went l- even further into, into developing this body of affirmative action law. And so here's what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is in the typical affirmative action case, um, you accept that whole line of cases as sort of as not judicial law in the sense like, you know, these are laws that we have to follow, but like, basically this is how to read the constitution. This is actually, we're interpreting the constitution. And so the, the, this case is, is a little different than the others because the typical case would be, is, is my, is this affirmative action program in line with what the Supreme court has said up to this point? Right, and you see a similar pattern with Roe, and all of the many, many cases that came after that that were that kept sort of uh, rearticulating and expounding upon the, the principles of you know the right to privacy and reproductive privacy and things like this. Uh, this case, like the one that they just heard that 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 they heard la- I think last year and then issued the opinion this year, uh, if I'm right, um, overturning Roe. This case as well is saying, look, let's this all of these cases stemming all the way back to 1978, starting with Backy. The second you said as a court uh, 44 years ago that you could take race into account, that was all wrong. That was all wrong. So I, this case is not asking to be in line with established judicial precedent. Okay, so here's mm-hmm. my question. And this is where I'm very, very, um, I just plain don't understand. Like, mm-hmm. what's the point of having a constitution if places as huge and influential as Harvard are just going to ignore it and like interpret it for like, you know, just interpret it for themselves? Well, that's why they got sued, right? Right, I mean, right. What I'm saying yeah. is like, they have made it so clear. All the people who are defending Harvard have made it very clear that, like, I don't, I don't hear race conscious. I hear straight racial preferences, and I'm hearing constant, like, how do we justify lessening the number of Asians that get in and increasing the number of blacks instead? Yeah, I mean, Harvard. I think it was very. So that sounds like racial preferences, which is, I mean, it sounds pretty racist to me. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly your confusion, I think, is part of is indicative of the problem that affirmative action as a series of cases, um, the it, it got us to a very weird place where and I think this I, I mean, I, I think that the you know, have you noticed that like on the Harvard side, like they're just very careful about exactly what you're saying. They're very careful out rhetoric and and vocabulary and they don't say racial preferences never they race is one of many factors you know like it, it has become a sort of word game 
They totally. obfuscate everything and it, they make it really difficult for us to understand, which is I'm sure by design. And then they like that one guy that was answering with like double negatives. Yeah. <laughs> Waxman. He was a Harvard attorney. Yeah. <laughs> like greasy mm-hmm. son of a gun. Oh man. <laughs> That's like, such wait, a hard time. So for- so you're you're like, you know, you're kind of just circling around the the question you're not answering it then you're like obfuscating it with your vocabulary and then you're answering in double negative so it's like no idea what you're talking about yeah, yeah. And i know that's on purpose to my normie brain so. it mm-hmm. sounded like they were arguing two separate two contradictory things at the same time yeah. like at one point i distinctly heard them saying that um race is an in is almost an inconsequential part of their decision making for admissions but also so critically important that they need to keep it. <laughs> yeah, I that. that was Alito's question is like, if you're saying that the personality score in which the racial preference was expressed, isn't really, is never a determinative factor. It doesn't matter, which is, I think what Harvard said. Then he said, okay, well then why would, said, why do you use it? And they're like, why, because why it's do you do it? Is what he kept saying. And he said, it's yeah. indispensable. <laughs> <laughs> it's double speak. And I think that that points to one of the problems here. And I think this is why we face this backlash against affirmative action because the I believe that there were a lot of inherent contradictions in this interpretation because you have very clear, plain language at the root of this, which is the 14th Amendment. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> right, and so this is all about the Fourteenth Amendment, and the and and we can get into this. Uh, we'll we'll get into this, but like the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, in short, it says that everyone all everyone is entitled to equal protection under the law, and I think that that's pretty clear that it means, and I think most people agree that that means on its face that you cannot apply the laws. Uh, or you cannot apply legal authority in this case uh, in, in in ways that discriminate between groups of people for whatever reason, not just race, but race is, is has long been considered what's called a, um, a suspect class. Meaning if we see laws that use, like if we see statutes that are passed that treat uh, people differently based on account of race, it's immediately considered suspect and there's, a huge amount of burden placed on, you know, whatever body passed that law to say, this looks really, really suspect to me. This doesn't, this looks like it's in violation of the 14th Amendment. And when it came to um, affirmative action, it flew directly in the, I mean, in many ways, affirmative action is an exception Mm -hmm. to the 14th Amendment Mm -hmm. to say, despite the law, the, the constitution clearly saying that laws must treat all, you know, must not treat groups of people differently. This is <laughs> affirmative action is exactly doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can't say it. Just... We can't say it's doing that. We, we, we allow it, but we have to hide it a little bit. Thus, <clears throat> remember affirmative action. There are things like uh, Eliza, our school, University of Maryland, used to have a scholar, or it still has, but it, there's a scholarship program called the Banneker Key Scholarship, which is a full ride scholarship. I actually, mm-hmm. I actually won, I actually won that scholarship and went to Maryland because of it. But the year before I went in 1995, I believe, <clears throat> um, that the you know up to my year, that was 
uh, a scholarship that Maryland, the state of Maryland, had provided solely for black applicants. It was very clear. It was like, this is set aside for black students. And I thought that that was a very clear program that was like, look, we want to encourage more black students to apply and attend Maryland. And so therefore, we're going to set aside a scholarship for you. Mm -hmm. And they got sued. And the federal court said, what the hell? You can't do this. But I'm like, but that's the purest expression of affirmative action there is. Right? It was very, like, straightforward. And it, it was just like, look, you know, we have a problem that we don't have enough black students on campus. And so we're going to set aside money to encourage them to come. And then they were like, no, no, no. This is too on its nose. It's too on its face. Mm-hmm. In order to qualify, you, you know, like, you can't have a black only scholarship, you know, especially at, you know, coming from state funds, Mm -hmm. that's in violation of the equal protection clause. And so Mm -hmm. they found this sort of middle road to be like, it can only be one of many factors. And so therefore that scholarship didn't work because it was the only factor for, in terms of, you know, determining who was eligible or not. Mm -hmm. And so I think we get into this very squishy, wishy-washy area where Harvard both needs to vigorously defend race-conscious admissions, but at the same time deny that race matters at all, which is what they said. I mean, Waxman was like, no student got in because of race and no student was rejected for race. Full stop. And obviously that's not the case. So there... He's almost forced. I mean, I don't fault him because he's a lawyer and he has to defend his client and represent his client, but he's almost forced into these self-contradictory positions because I believe the law requires him to almost because it is. Yeah, it's really unclear now. Um, there's that AEI. Maybe this is a good time to talk about the uh, that AEI talk from 1985 that you had posted for us in the mm-hmm. group chat, in the group discord. Yeah. Um, put it in the show notes too. Yeah, sure. it's it's worth a watch. It's 1985, um, and it honestly, like the first few minutes, framed up what we're talking about today perfectly. I think the same questions are still are still uh, alive right now that we're that we're litigating um, to this very day. Uh, one of the points that uh, they bring up, which I think is one of the core ones that I haven't seen very much, if at all, mentioned in the in the press today. Is the is the question of uh, group politics versus individual rights, sure. right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. does the Constitution of the United States does it provide cover for protection at the group level, or is it only at the individual level? Um, yeah, in the context by which I believe that came up was to say, like, um, you know, it's one thing to have what was called like the Freedmen's Bureau, which was like an agency of the government that was set up to provide you know, economic assistance to freed slaves and refugees from the civil war. Right. Yeah. And the, there was belief, a race. Um, the principle yep. for that one is that it's not necessarily race. It's by con- like that they were formerly enslaved. It so happened that all the people who had been formerly enslaved were black. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so the argument is like, you're not helping a group of people. You're helping individuals yes. that this thing happened. They're in this situation. You were a slave. You are a refugee, so we are going to help you. And it was not, um, it was not aimed at a group. Like it wasn't aimed at Black Americans. It was aimed at people who were enslaved. 
right? And so I think the question came up in that in that debate. At, uh, okay, well, what about when we talk about affirmative action? This is about the dis- like in in some cases the descendants of slaves, but not always. We're talking about Black Americans, and they may and have like a connection. The intended beneficiaries of who actually benefits. Yeah, so they're saying like you're 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 this this law is or these programs are aimed to benefit a group of people based on race, not because of anything that happened to them at an individual level. To which there's a rebuttal to say, okay, yeah, but we're not talking about slavery here. We're talking about you know a century of segregation that mm-hmm. was a racialized law that was race race conscious. Uh, in itself, mm-hmm. and we're talking about the invidious discrimination post Brown that continues, and that is also based on group, uh, race, racial groups, and so the argument, which I found to to an extent compelling, at least back then, was you can't you got to fight fire with fire to an extent, right, and so. The idea that we would suddenly become a colorblind society was history showed us that when we got past the Civil War and passed, you know, abolished slavery, passed the Civil War amendments, went through Reconstruction, we ended up sort of back in the same place with segregation, with Jim Crow. (laughs) Right. We went colorblind and then uh, realized it kind of all started looking like the same exact hue. Um, yeah. Oddly enough, yeah. I yeah, mean, so I, I think argument. I mean, I don't know how you scholar, guys felt. But... Um, that said, in order to pursue, to some like uh, to some degree, this whole argument over group politics versus individual is an academic one because uh, in real life, uh, the pursuit, the protection of individual rights, will involve some amount of protection for the group that they rep- that they are members of in society. So there is, there is, there is. A big overlap. We're debating how far that has to overlap, right? And it gets especially messy in a college application because it's very specifically about individuals who are applying, but then the group interest of Harvard. And we have social interest in this, that that uh, we have a group interest in Harvard because they are the de facto like uh, kingmakers of American society, globally too, actually. Um, and I have a question on, on that front too. Um, so we have a number of, uh, of, of identity markers that are protected. Um, why is socioeconomic status not a recognized marker? That I was think, my next question too. Is why I think the answer the to that is because the, if I recall, um, it's, it, 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 the most suspect classes are those that cannot be changed. There's a there's a word for it. I'm forgetting what it's called, but basically, like it, it's is this asp- a legal concept or yes, like it's a, a legal like, concept okay. that the if a class is based on uh, it's called like um, I forgot the the word. Um, I got like a B in con law, uh, but like <laughs> it, it it's about whether. Um, that uh, that particular trait is like permanent and unchangeable. Uh, so therefore, like age is not quite as protected as gender and race. Uh, mm-hmm. You could say like, well, then why is religion in there? It's not totally, you know, 
consistent. But I think class is something that's not is is not considered like a permanent trait. And so therefore, it's not quite a suspect because you're not dealing with these categories of like sort of inalien, you know, non unchangeable identity markers. Why? Like, so, you know. so even, I mean, all right. It's not so, a great, it's not a great test, but that's like, it, it, it has more or less become like, look, these are the, these are the protected classes and these are not. And yeah, that's just I mean, what it is. if they were, if well, they were like, going okay. to do like class-based affirmative action, like doesn't it, the class that the student is in when they're applying, doesn't that matter the most? The idea is that they're going to college because they're trying to improve their station. I think that the what I'm saying is that the or the current interpretation of equal protection does not prohibit like differential treatment based on like you know economic uh, conditions or or like how wealthy you are. So the state is totally allowed. For example, the government is totally allowed to means test benefits programs. And say, like, for example, the recent debt forgiveness thing that mm-hmm. student debt forgiveness program, you you can't, uh, you can't, it doesn't work. It, you know, you don't get it if you make more than 125000 a year. Or like even graduated tax brackets, right? Mm-hmm. Wealthy pay more taxes than the poor, right? So that mm-hmm. that's just like a deeply ingrained thing in our society that we can take into account, you know, one's ability to pay. Or one, yeah. you know, one's wealth. That that's fine. We don't have a problem with that. But it seems like a lot of the de- the social debate, not the legal debate, the social debate around case, like affirmative action cases, um, it hinges around race. Um, in this particular, in cases like this, of course. Um, but it occurred to me that um, if you segmented by class, uh, making class a protected identity in some shape or, or form also provides accomplishes at least most of the goals of race-based consideration because the the argument for affirmative action um especially with regards to like black and hispanic and and native um native applicants is that uh by and like most of the people most of people who are black brown or indigenous uh are so are also socioeconomically disadvantaged which puts which handicaps them in the pursuit of all of the uh the accomplishments the the credentials that wealthier students at wealthier students and asians uh, <laughs> um are able to bring to the table so I mean, is then race the most salient thing to to uh, to point out for protection for these groups, or is it the fact that they are coming from a disadvantaged socioeconomic position? Well, I mean, Harvard. I'm not asking, would... I'm not asking you that. I this I don't. I, I hate that this. I, I don't want this to become like a like a grill teen session. Or, um... no, no, but it's a fair question. I think Harvard's answer to that was like, no. I mean, there is something to be said about race that is different from class right there's something about racial identity and experience that is not easily replicated just because like you know um the kind of diversity that harvard wants clearly is not economic diversity (laughs) right i mean that's just we can see that from uh you know and maybe i mean maybe that is it's right you know i i don't think that there's like a requirement that 
universities that get federal funding like Harvard or state schools for that matter, which pretty much all universities, right? Uh, have to have an economically diverse or otherwise diverse class. They don't have to. Um, well, so that brings us to another to question way, here. Right? What is Harvard then? Right? That's another unexamined uh, and but and and a corollary to uh, what is Harvard is what is the role of higher education and what is what is it to us in the current in our current day right now? That seems unexamined. Uh, subject right? of deep fascination. It seems so it's subject to deep fascination, but what is the importance? Like we are so invested in Harvard's uh, admissions processes because we kind of, I think we understand implicitly understand that Harvard mints most of the people who most like most people who are in, a lot of people who end up in positions of power and influence will have come from Harvard or one of these other um, yeah. super select it's a certification uh, program. Yeah. I think um, that, that, the fascination with Harvard is mostly uh, cultural and that there will not be many practical social effects of whatever happens to Harvard's admissions program. It, it just doesn't matter. Like I mean, Harvard touts that let... ever since the lawsuit like was filed, that actually the number of Asian students has gone way up and they're now the entering class is now at 26 or 27 percent versus this. Mm-hmm. This this insistence that it was capped at twenty, so I mean, if that's true, then then Harvard is basically saying like, uh, you know, we, you know, we we could go higher than twenty, <laughs> you know, whatever. But my but I think like stepping back from Harvard, means Harvard right? knows what's good for it. Honestly, well, if you hate Harvard, if you actually don't like this institution, the best thing to do would actually be to just let them do whatever the the fuck they want. But, honestly. Let yeah, them go I, back to being being an incestuous little wasp hangout, finishing school for wasp elites, and they will quickly slide into irrelevance. Their reputation is actually propped up by the excellence of a of, by having access to the cream of the crop. Yeah, I mean, it'll be a school that is known most for you know, uh, like sexual assault in frat houses and. You know, fucking yeah. alcohol. New trends, it, new trends in yeah. yacht shoes, right? Like that's <laughs> that's gonna be what it's what it turns into, um, right? Uh, that's actually the best thing. We are kind of propping up this institution of power of power, uh, like how power is propagated well, in society by okay. by continuing this. Okay, I think that let's let's just forget the practical, like this whole theory that Harvard's really important because it's a gatekeeper gatekeeping institution into the ruling elite or whatever like i think that's a very abstract concept and plus if it's important that there's enough asians in there to make it through i think there's enough asians in there to make it through for to satisfy our needs for elite asians right i'm not suffering for lack of elite asians in america Uh, my big question (laughs) about that one though is that most of our plot is about how there's too many if we want them to shut the hell up more than 40 percent of harvard's admitting um admitted freshman class is like legacies haven't asians been going to harvard long enough that like a lot of asian kids could be legacies at this point like what's take what is um yeah, what is the yeah. Problem now? like we, they've been asians have been excelling at academics since like this has been known in american culture since the 80s so like why aren't there more asian legacies then okay well let, i mean there are let, let me, um, let me like, but let me why frame can't it this they get way in that way let me, let me, Why let me, aren't more getting in that way is what I'm asking. I'm sure some are, you know, 
Um, but let me let's step back for a sec because I think I think it's very easy to fixate on Harvard here because the case is about Harvard. And okay, if you okay, if you boil any it, elite college, then well, like, no, but like if you boil it down, it's not even really just about Harvard. It's about this particular kid who sued, and and I forgot his name, but he ended up going to Duke, right? And and then they certified that into a class. So it's really about at at its core when it first began, it's about an individual and whether his individual rights under the constitution were violated by this particular university. And nobody should really care about that. Right. And then it got, you know, expanded into a class and, and you're talking about a handful of Asian students in a given particular year. And nobody should care about that either. The reason that we care is because from the beginning, this was designed as a test case scenario. Mm-hmm. And Edward Bloom has a larger political goal here than just Harvard or uh, any sincere care for Asian Americans. This was a novel method for him uh, to challenge uh, not just affirmative action, but an entire like history of like judicial interpretation of the constitution that goes back to that 1985 debate. They weren't talking about Asian Americans in that 1985 debate. And, and what I'm saying is that what was at stake here is really has got nothing to do with Asian Americans. We are part of it and we have like, we have felt effects of it. And because of the specific and particular effects that not, not that we felt, but that this one guy felt Right became a reason, an excuse, a justification for there to be a wholesale review of a body of law that stretches back 45 years is like what this is about. And so the more the debate is about Harvard and what's going to happen to Harvard and what's going to happen to Asian kids at Harvard. Look, at this point, I would say like as Asians, I think we could take the W because it's pretty much in the bag. The case is pretty much in the bag and they're, you know, that kid and the certified class that stands behind him is going to win, mm-hmm. right? So they've won their lawsuit. Now, what does that mean? It, it means that, you know, in, at, on one hand, it means that a guy won his lawsuit. And he, I don't, you know, this will get remanded down and they'll have a retrial or whatever. And maybe he could sue Harvard for something. I don't know. But... Um, my, that's really trivial. Like nobody really cares about what happens to this guy. He's fine. He said he's fine. He didn't care. I mean, even he said, I filed this lawsuit for the principal. And I don't know if he understood quite how big the principal was, but this is certainly, and now that we've won, I think we can maybe step back and be like gracious winners a little bit to say, what about, you know, when people were saying Asian Americans were being enlisted for a greater cause? I think that's absolutely true. I just don't have a problem with that. But the greater cause, you know, here, and it's actually part of the uh, the the challenge of Roe v. Wade too, goes all the way back to 1860s and this what I would consider a sort of second framing or a rebirth of the United States. Really, United States, really as we know it, stems not back to like 1776 or 17. It, it really stems from 1860 onwards because the country was fundamentally reframed after the Civil War. Are you talking about like uh, like the 13th Amendment on up? 13, 14, and 15. So 13 uh-huh. was the abolition of slavery. And that's that's not really contested much because it's so 
clear and simple. You, mm-hmm. you know, no slavery, right? 14th uh, is equal protection. And and due process. Due yeah. process, So equal yeah. protection. See, those are the two major prongs of the 14th Amendment, right? 15th was the right to vote. That's also very mm-hmm. simple. So 13 and 15 are sort of like, you know, very, they're not really litigated much because they're so clear. But the 14th is like kind of wishy-washy. It's like due process of law. Everyone, like, you know, no one shall have life, liberty, or whatever, like, taken away from them without due process of law. And, you know, all, you know, states have to, you know, give everyone equal protection under the laws. What does that really mean? That is the sort of, like, open-ended type of amendment, and that gets heavily litigated. Now, the two prongs, due process. uh, Due process is the foundation of the challenge, both the the right to an abortion and the challenge uh to that right it's all being litig it, it's relitigating what the due process clause means and equal protection that's affirmative action so this case plus the case on that overturned roe really are part of the same overall challenge to the 14th Amendment, not itself, but the interpretation of it. And, like, this is, I don't know, I'm not I'm not sure the media has really quite grasped, one, the connection between the two, and two, like, how big of a revision this is, because, like, and I was telling you, too, in the chat, like, this, to me, seems like going, it's like Back to the Future. It is like we're traveling back to... 1978 in this case so what's the next big question like going back to first principles like do we want a meritocracy is that what the I next think that's big part question of it is? yeah i mean the legal side of it is like the legal side of it is are we a colorblind society or not a society are our laws colorblind mm-hmm. right do, do the law are the laws was the reframing of the United States in the in the post Civil War era was were the framers of that time, thirty ninth Congress, right? Were they intending for the laws to be colorblind going forward? Not a colorblind society, obviously. We know that's not true, and that can't be true. But uh, that the laws themselves would have to be colorblind and could not. Mm-hmm you know, differentiate people based on, you know, these, you know, based on identity categories. So that leads, me to my, that leads me to my next question about the next step, like um, less about principle, but more specific, like, are we going to see someone take a case to the Supreme Court suing some company over their diversity hiring preferences? I would think so. Seems like, seems like uh, imp- are we headed in that direction? employment. Is is probably next, depending on the scope of the ruling. I think there's going to be a massive amount of litigation because you've there is a complete shift in the substrate of, of like the substructure of like the Constitution, and it's so deep that I don't think like ordinary you know life we're going to perceive you know something that happened so far underground. But it is, you know, it, it's like, um, it is like Back to the Future. It's like, you know how when he goes back to the present, like, 
it's still the same family. It's still the same life, but like little things have changed, but in big ways, like his like father has self-confidence, <laughs> you know, they like they're living in the same house. house. Yeah, but his father is creatively liberated. Yeah, you know, like Biff, something like that. Their, uh-huh. Biff is like their house boy or their errand boy. Exactly, exactly. And you know, it took time, obviously, for those changes to trickle through in this alternate present that he created by going into the past and tinkering with it. And that's what's happened. Is like we're gonna go. We went back to, you know, the time of, you know, the the emergence of this sort of divergence away from you know colorblind era laws with a little bit of quotes because obviously there was very race conscious uh books uh statutes on the books but the this this idea that you know somewhere in the in the 70s late 70s 80s that we became comfortable with the idea that the government could play an affirmative, proactive role in assisting a particular racial group over, you know, over others, giving them, quote, special treatment or differential treatment or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Whatever word, you know, makes you feel comfortable uh, with, with the reality of what's going on, which is that the law, the state, the government is allowed to treat people differently because of their race for good or for bad and for the proponents of affirmative action in the 80s i think they had every reason to think that this was a noble and good thing because their their arguments were strong i mean this had to do with you know centuries of enslavement and at least a century of you know segregation de, de jure segregation persistent this persistent uh, discrimination, mm-hmm. disenfranchisement. Uh, yeah. Yes. I mean, these, yeah. these things all have momentum and they will, and they will have ramifications for the current day. You can't ignore that. Yeah. And I, 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 I am here saying that as Asian Americans, we factored into this. We, uh, okay, let me, let me put it this way. I, I think that I, 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 I'm very pissed off at the at elite liberal Asian Americans who seem to all be the ones at the schools like Harvard and Columbia and <laughs> whatever like yeah they're the f- <laughs> ones that are fucking in these schools telling everyone outside the citadel walls that we how shitty Asians are <laughs> yeah like we that, yeah like we are shitty for being opposed to affirmative action i disagree with that i think that asian americans like all people in this democracy of ours need to be their own best advocate and need to be clear and honest about what their interests and beliefs are because that's the only way that we as a society can move forward, right? Because if Asians like don't aren't honest about this, then we're just going to get more and more bitter and resentful and that's going to come out somewhere down the road, right? So mm-hmm. we might as well just have it out now. And so I think Asians should be as, you know, assertive about our interests as possible because that it's we're not it's not even about opposing affirmative action or saying it's wrong. It's about being our own advocate and saying, okay, I know that this is a really deep history. These are really important laws. These go to the very heart of the history of this country. This goes to the heart of the you know history of slavery and segregation, and that's all around us. But we as Asian Americans were part of this too. 
And we may or may not matter in the larger scheme of things, but we should have our day in court. And there's no way for us to move forward unless, like, you know, we are we are willing to participate in this sort of like legal and political negotiation. Uh, and we are, you know, sort of like vigorous participants in that. And what really pissed me off was that they were being fundamentally anti-democratic, these Asian blue checks, by saying, we're not allowed to say anything. Our interests don't matter. Take a back seat. This is bigger than us. I'm like, yeah, it's bigger than us. That's exactly why we need to speak up. It is bigger than us. Yeah, especially but- it's like you're telling people, you know, their readers are not just, um, their readers are also like parents. So it's like people like me and my friends, it's like our kids are going to be applying for college in less than a decade. I don't want my sons or my daughter to have to like move aside for somebody else. Right, right. Like I yeah. don't want to. Yeah. Yeah, and and you shouldn't want to. Why should you want that? Why would you? And want if you that? feel no. that, and if you feel that your children's right or your right, as in the case of this, uh, the the kid that went to Duke. I wish we had his name. Um, I know, I fully support. There were people who were mad that he had signed on to that lawsuit to be the front of it. He felt his his rights had been violated, uh, in in America in violation of u.s law he has every right to try to seek his see to seek redress in court i saw him on tv um he has a lot of convictions so i'm pretty proud of him that he's standing he's not apologizing for anything this is what everyone this is what everyone should be allowed i see kenny shu on tv all the time and he has a lot of conviction too and here's the thing all of us every single one of us no matter what our belief is we are all in agreement that we will accept the outcome of either the legislative or the judicial processes or the political processes. Like we're not subverting democracy here. We're not subverting uh, justice. We're participating in that process, right? And for example, like I mean, as a lawyer, I understand very clearly. Like you go to court and you represent your client's interests. Mm-hmm. You don't reach for higher values. That's not how it works. The higher value comes in the adversarial process. It's not up to us as participants to be the better person. That's not how it's supposed to work. At least not our system. Our system is about everyone comes to court on their allotted day or they they come to the uh you know this civic hearing or or they come and testify before Congress or whatever. Uh, or they call their congressman, and they lay out, this is me, this is what I care about, this is important to me, this matters a whole lot to me. Now, I know there are competing interests, and you're going to have conversations with them, and I'm you should, <laughs> and uh, I will accept the outcome of this process, but when it's my turn to talk, I'm going to say what I want to say. And I was very just floored by that it was Asian Americans, of all people, that were insisting that we shouldn't be allowed to do this. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, I think we are our own worst oppressors. This, this is my takeaway <laughs> from this is like, I am the, of all people, I am most sus- suspicious of other Asian Americans mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. seem to really, really insist that we are not allowed to have our day in court. And that is anti-democratic. It's anti-American, right? Mm-hmm, and yeah. so fuck these people because 
You're they're the ones that are really subverting this system. And they're lying. Straight up lying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On one one dimension that they're being very dishonest about is the idea that uh, by Asians asserting their rights, by asserting their qualifications and asserting their right to, to these positions in these elite un- institutions, that they are actually stealing spots from uh, from black and brown specifically um, <laughs> spots who need who it, they don't they don't say deserve because we still have to adopt the language of meritocracy, but that they could use that help more. So in that sense, they cosmically deserve those seats uh, more so than some some Asian American who probably had who probably had all the benefits of Asianness and white adjacency and blah, blah, positive blah. positive bias. Oh, God. Um <laughs> That's actually been imper- that's been proven to be false though. <laughs> if Asian Americans seed space, it doesn't that spot does not go to that underprivileged black or brown student, this hypothetical one. Mm-hmm. We already have the data for this. So so they so that's that's one thing that they're completely lying on, lying about. Uh the second is I, they imply that we we don't deserve we don't deserve uh deserve where we're at. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, implying uh, they just came out straight and said it. I mean, yeah, Jennifer's I, op-ed, right? I yeah, mean, and I, Times? I, I binged her book in a day. It's a short book; it's only two hundred pages, just to see what the hell this was all about. Um, you know, she pretty much she's. If I can sum up the article in one sentence, it's like, guys, you're not discriminating against Asian Americans hard enough. Here, <laughs> let, here's my evidence. Um, it's, it's a Too much positive fraud. bias. We need more negative bias now. Yeah. Like, like, you know, they call it gaslighting Jess, but I, it's just oppression. It, that is just straight up oppression Yeah. to, to advocate, f- not, not just to advocate against Asian American interests, but to advocate the idea that we shouldn't be allowed to speak up. That we shouldn't be allowed to even defend ourselves. You know, I think that's the part. We don't have the moral standing in uh, to, to sum up uh, one dimension of Jennifer Lee's book. We just don't have the, the standing to do so. We What we have collectively as a racial group in America is ill-gotten, basically. Based oh. on what? Interviews with 162 Asian American people in Los Angeles, California. I'm Not just anywhere. Wouldn't. Yeah, because I, 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 I saw that she had done her ethnography in Los Angeles. So, okay, well, I mean, I'm from here. So maybe maybe I should see what's, what's, what's going on here. It's extremely cherry-picked examples here. Mm. To cult, it's yeah. it's the definition of a predetermined of a predetermined outcome that ba- mm-hmm. that she ba- that she and the author backfilled with data here. Uh, mm. 162. It, Los Angeles has millions of uh, of. Uh, of Asian Americans here, millions, 162 people is not even a is not even a, a descriptive sample just for Asians in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So that's that should be the first that should be the first warning. Uh, who who and what population was this 162 pulled from? Selected graduates of selected high schools that had significant but not majority uh, Asian American presence. That's kind of important because a big cornerstone of her work is actually talking about how Asian Americans benefit from a positive bias that uh, that predisposes authority figures and people, you know, people with uh, 
with the power to advance our academic and professional interests forward that predisposes them to think of us charitably, if not outright positively, and give us give us uh, you know a good tailwind that propels us into into that propels us to, and primes us for success later in life. To to do that. To be able to make that case, you need to find teachers who have, uh, who even, who can even start having that bias, right? And that means that it can't be like a, it can't be a place like my high school where it was basically seventy percent Asians. You ask a mm-hmm. teacher, and most of my teachers growing up were uh, were white. If you were to talk to one of those, one of my teachers in high school, and say like, like. I don't know, like, what's your opinion on Asians? They wouldn't say the things that she was able to find uh, teachers and students. They wouldn't be saying the things that she managed to find for her her book. Like, what what do you mean? Like, I see idiot Asians, lazy Asians, (laughs) smart Asians, dumb Asians. Like, what the hell are you talking about? Right. With that kind of super majority presence, you can't. I I, my teachers probably would have general, like very broadly, like maybe like. They'd probably say so like like I have no problem with like I love my students. I I you know, I respect their backgrounds, you know. Like we're cool. Like I don't know what your question is, right? They wouldn't say like, "Oh, yeah, I I advanced the Asian American kid in my class to the top of his class." How? You have 60 of them. And mm-hmm. 40 of them are going to be Asian. What do you mean like you somehow think all 40 of them are super smart here? Like that's not going to happen. She found, she cherry picked specific locations in Los Angeles that were able that she could get this uh, impression from. Let, let, mm-hmm. let me ask you, does, does it matter anymore? Because, uh, you know, I found myself reading her op-ed and it, it just, it read to me the way I interpreted it was just, she doesn't really give a fuck anymore. Right. She really She's doesn't. Like, Look, I, I am just going to come out and say this. Asian students don't really belong in these places. They are trying they don't to deserve it. They don't really deserve it. And frankly, I don't care about them because I have other tribal affiliations, <laughs> you know, being a member of the faculty here with uh, my allies and my group of people that I care about. And uh, it's not the Asian kids. So I don't give a fuck about you. And when I read this, I was like, you know what? You know why this doesn't matter to me? It doesn't matter because they lost. It, it doesn't matter to me because... I don't know how you all felt, but I, I hate to say it, but listening to Alito, Samuel Alito, the most hated man in America. Uh, I was very impressed with him. I yeah, yeah, I felt, you know what, not only is this person in this particular moment, now I don't like Alito, but in this particular moment, it really felt, it was a new sensation to hear someone with real power kind of on your side someone with immense power uh using that against someone who i really like waxman right the harvard lawyer mm-hmm. i really felt he was smacking like he was hitting him in the ass with a switch like a like a like a schoolmaster, <laughs> you know, Victorian like school I don't boy. care if Alito <laughs> is hated. He is a great bullshit detector. Well, he has a consistent. the The benefit that he has is a very consistent worldview and and a lot of yes. precedent to back him up. The other side does not. 
That's why it always has to default to a blanket, uh, a blanket accusation of racism for even bringing the issue up or, or de- illustrating a contradiction in it, because it is a contradictory set of beliefs coming to a head here. It's not defensible. I just want to, I just want to put my own caveat around this because I, I think that the reason Alito and the other um, and I thought Kavanaugh was pretty effective in places too. I thought Kavanaugh um, was great. Yeah. And um, I thought that the reason they had the advantage beyond the numbers, right? I mean, even Clarence Thomas was landed some great points. Um, he asked a great question. Like, what does diversity mean? Because yeah, it, means like, it means whatever the fuck everybody. you want it to mean, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> Um, but I think that the reason they had the sort of advantage of rationality and clarity here is because they don't have to prove anything. It's the law, it's the Waxman and the Harvard that have to prove that the last 44 years of experimentation with this idea of affirmative action is working. And, uh, you know, a big theme in this was that even, in 2003 in Grutter v. Bollinger, the court sort of put a timetable to this, like, okay, we're, we're, we're okay with affirmative action, but this has got to stop at some point. And remember, like, they kept asking, when is this going to stop? At what point do you admit that this either didn't, isn't working or it's worked well enough and we can stop this? Didn't but, that guy, that's a critical that, question for me. Didn't that yeah. guy from, um, God, that economics professor, what was his name? He was canceled like a couple years ago because he said about affirmative action, like, well, he just, he was canceled because he just had on issues of race. He just thought the wrong things, mm-hmm. uh, according to the elites. But he had this famous quote about affirmative action. He said, um, I benefited greatly from affirmative action. I very much hope my children will not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, that's consistent with be... the court's findings in in, in holding in. Um, it's yeah, there has to, yeah. yeah. At some point, it's like it's just it's just becoming. Um... It ha- it was designed as a remedial, right? As a as a token of compensation for mm-hmm. as an acknowledgement for centuries of injustice. Right, it was long before our time. So it's not like you can say that any single individual, you know, at the time could be held accountable for you know injustices perpetrated centuries ago. But still recognize. So there's no person to put on trial here, but acknowledging that there's still after effects uh, down the generations. So we're gonna we're gonna actually we're going to put our foot on the we're going to tilt the scales a little bit to give to give groups that we acknowledge have suffered uh, injustice in the past a leg up uh the idea being that this leg up will help contribute to a, a lifting effect for the entire group eventually that that lift has to end right like if uh yeah, if, especially if, if there's the some recognition that there's parity has been yeah, if if some parity, like this has to be in service of some of the goal of of achieving some kind of parity uh, between between um, the advantaged group and the disadvantaged group. So this has to come with a timeline here. This had to have come with like metrics that we could evaluate on, right? Like are Black Americans or Brown Americans like X percent more on par with like I don't know White Americans or something, right? Uh, it didn't come with anything like that. It's just, it's entirely vibes. So this this thing just gets so messy for me. 
really, well, it's, really it was, it's always been a messy branch of constitutional interpretation because it mm-hmm. is essentially an exception to the fort it's an exception to the constitution is what I, it is I, right it, it doesn't and be fine doesn't, with I would be fine if it's a narrowly constructed uh, exception because I recognize the need for a remedy, some kind of remedy for the social situation we have here. But my problem with uh, with abolishing, like like doing race consciousness in law, uh, like okay, look at look at the wave of anti Asian like like attacks. Right, you actually had a progressive leaning activist class who's advocating without actually outright coming out and saying it though saying that there should be a two-tiered system of justice that literally the crime perpetrated varies in severity depending on the identity of the part of the attacker okay but yeah, i mean no. all, but equally you could say well equally you could say then that under that same principle that the police department is not allowed to create a task force that's specifically focused on anti-asian crimes you like, could, yeah. Right. So, the, you know, these are never clear cut. And, and and this is my point is that, uh, you know, I don't think that the, the colorblind route is necessarily the, quote, correct one, nor do I think that the race conscious route was the correct one. These are alternative paths, and each of them have, uh, you know, upsides and downsides for different groups. And with the branch that we took, you know, in the late 70s, 80s, towards these race conscious, it's not even just laws, but it's also like our culture, you know, wrapped around these laws to say this expect we have a cultural expectation that the government is race, like it applies its resources and its powers in a race conscious way. We expect the, the, that the government will do that, should do that. We're, and we've gotten comfortable with it, or at least half of America or there, roughly thereabouts has gotten very comfortable with that, which is why I think this has become more than a legal fight. It's a cultural fight, right? Mm-hmm. Because we've, we've been this way for 45 years. Now we're going back to the future, and we're going to take another route, and we're going to take the colorblind route now. I mean, that's what's going on. Do you think and that's, that's I, what's going to happen? Yeah, and I think that the reason why... Alito and Kavanaugh and Barrett and Thomas all of a sudden made me feel seen, right? Is because they were saying, all they were doing is saying, these are all the problems that have, that these are the, the intractable problems that have arisen because of the choice we made in 1978 or in, 19, in 2003 or whatever. But all these choices that we made back then have led to these problems, right? And because the SFFA had the advantage of choosing the location of the battle, which was Harvard, mm-hmm. Harvard's not very sympathetic. People don't really feel for Harvard. No. People don't really believe that Harvard is out there trying to fix racism. Nobody really believes that about Harvard. And so the reason we're talking about Harvard is because I feel like Edward Blum was very careful about picking the site of his battle in furtherance of winning a bigger war. And this was a very advantageous battleground for him because everyone fucking hates Harvard. And mm-hmm. we all know Harvard's bullshitting and lying and they only want to admit elites and they want, you know, they want to dress up um, their class to look a certain way. But in reality, they're all privileged kids 
And we even hate our own classmates that are Harvard aspiring. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is a very detestable place. And I think I, Edward I also Blum don't knew think that. that's what Harvard does. I don't. I also think that's that's not Harvard's mo here. Uh, sorry, um, I, mean. I don't. I think if left to their own devices, I don't think Harvard would turn into a like. I know I joked about it earlier, but I don't actually think Harvard would turn into some waspy hangout. Uh, you know, finishing school for Muffy and Teddy. They're way ahead of that. Yeah. Harvard has a has a very privileged position as an as an esteemed global institution, right? They were very savvy about accepting like the elites from all over the world, right? They like Xi Jinping's Obama. daughter graduated from Harvard. That's that's you know like like that's uh like like all like dignitaries and you know is like notables across the world. They all want to send their kids to Harvard because that's that's the position it has. Yeah. Um, if left to its own devices, I think they would just double down on that, becoming a an, a global powerhouse institution. Yes. Um, yeah. and part of that does mean uh boosting boosting its academic credentials. Well, um, and its optics. And its optics, right? They have as, to as a global institution that is you know pluralistic and you know embodies all of those you know liberal elite values that ha- mm-hmm. are so vaunted especially among the elite <laughs> you know firmly backstopped school. and i firmly think that backstopped think, with I, a high academic and high academic achievement as a proxy for uh predicting like like career accomplishment yeah, and I think that Edward Blum, like, I don't necessarily consider him or would necessarily classify his supporters as right-wingers. I think that there is a more populist element to this where there is a sort of a class, you know, backlash and uh, a, a growing sense of class resentment here on both the left and the right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't feel like this case has moved me towards the right in any way. I just feel that I am reframing the conflict as not between left and right but more of you know a class distinction between those who only care about the drama and you know of the elites and the you know what, what's going on with them versus um the rest of the people who are like wait, wait my life matters too right mm-hmm. like why are we only talking about fucking harvard and so i think that the the the, the decision to sue harvard um as a way to pry open, uh, you know, all of this history and re-examine all of this history is was a, was really ba- premised upon a belief or uh, or a bet that there was a lot of populist energy that would say "fuck these." Did you see Rob Schneider today? <laughs> he I saw his tweet. Yeah, he came out and just said all these. Li- I mean, even him, who I haven't even thought of in a while, in a long time, out of nowhere was like these liberal elite bastards, you know, talking about <laughs> Columbia and Jennifer Lee. You know, I was like, wow, the the sensitive naked man, the copy guy, he's becoming class he's conscious and radicalized. You know, like that was so random. Uh, but yeah, I, think it was I, I saw that and I it did, I thought it was like Rob Schneider, like a joke account, the Rob Schneider, the joke account or something. And him? then like, oh, no, that's actually him. Like, oh, shit. Oh, wow. Yeah. OK, cool. Deuce Bigelow, uh, you know. Coming out yeah, with the fire. He's he's um, Filipino, right? Half. Yeah, I think he's half, half Filipino. Filipino. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right, rock on. <laughs> yeah, rock on. I, you got. You, I think uh, you're you're onto something with the populist resentment. Um, maybe we should touch on the Wariku 
article in the Atlantic a little bit. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's let's get into it. So I mean, just uh, the the point from that article that's salient to this one is um, a response to uh, a response to a question about like, are there proxies for race admissions? Like I had asked earlier, um, like what about what about like white like socioeconomic status? Like that's an important identifier, an important. Uh, marker for where a person comes from and and can be either a boost or a drag it's it's nonsensical to me that it's not uh taken into into consideration taken more seriously in questions like this um so the question to uh this is warku a woman her yes yes okay uh to her was you know are there other proxies for race that we can use in admissions and her response is that um like her response is kind of interesting because she's saying she says that they, there's no there's no stand in for race. If you use class, you are not going to fundamentally you are you might not achieve um, the kind of r- like racial diversity that we're going for here because in this country most you know numerically speaking most poor people in this country are going to be white. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're not going to racially diverse. And she just walks on past that. And that's like, whoa, whoa, hold hold on a second. Okay. I get, I get that we're talking about racial, uh, racial equality and how to make sh- ensure that, uh, people of, of people of under like, um, minor- non-white minorities get a boost, uh, get their, get their chance at the table here. But she just kind of blithely walks over this whole, like this class argument here, like, and this brings up like what is the purpose of higher education? Like Harvard is Harvard, but this but this affirmative action thing it, it largely implicates at least the 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 institutions of higher education in the country here, at least for now here. Um, do we not have like? And this comes up in the student debt debate too, right? We have a big debate between education is a personal privilege, an individual privilege that you have to earn, that you attain, and then the benefits accrue to you. And likewise, on the flip side, the costs incurred in getting that education, you owe. It's a simple, like like education is a commodity, an individual, like a like a thing that you can purchase, basically. Uh, so running out on your tab is like running out on your credit card bill, or you know, uh, shoplifting, basically, or something, right? It's a it's a it's a commodity. And then there's education as a broad social benefit, right? Everyone benefits from a well-educated population, whether that's strictly, you know, high like college. Um, that's a separate debate, but the but the way we've structured it now. Um, your your access to higher to better economic opportunity is largely gate kept through in, through um, institutions of higher learning here. Um, so on that on the second front, this her answer is really not satisfactory. Do we not have a social interest in uh, seeing seeing poor people uh, raised up? It's almost saying like because most poor people are white, we're just going to skip over that. I think that no, there, we we I don't think we really have an interest in the diversity of elite universities in a socioeconomic. I don't think it matters. I think the problem. What do you mean? The, I, because I think that the real fear here is um, that Harvard and the other Ivies and all these elite universities ultimately get exposed for what they are, which is like you know, classist elitist institution that deserve our scorn. And what's going on here, and I and I find Waraku's I read it as assuming we read the same one in the Atlantic, that she has a series of articles. But the one I read was essentially saying like, look, 
let, let's just get over this idea, this myth of meritocracy at the elite institutions. That's never what it was. It was never about that. Okay. She's at Tufts, which she counts among these institutions. The, these places are to, uh, you know, it, it, it's to foster um, like elites. Okay. And this is not really about meritocracy. So like, let's just, for these elite schools, like just leave meritocracy out of it. It, it it's never was that. Okay. Um, just move along. It doesn't matter. I mean, and and with Jennifer Lee's thing, I mean, she came out and was just like, look, I mean, Asian students, they're just, they're not even that fucking great. Okay. Like, you know, they're saying that they deserve to get in because they have great scores, but I don't even really think that they earned those scores. Like they've gone full <laughs> mask off because I, you know, it's, it's just amazing to me. You know why? Because I think that, and I think this happens a lot. I, I, I suspect this happens a lot. When you start to see that it's a lost cause, when you start to see over every day you're getting ratioed on Twitter, every day you're get you're just getting piled on online, and your school's getting piled on, and you know Columbia was caught lying to U.S. News and World Report, and <laughs> you, you heard about that, right? Like, you know, every day it seems like more and more the tide is turning against these institutions as. Um, esteemable places, great uh, places. Shucks. Yeah. And they, you know what? They're tired of it and they just want to close the wall. You know, they just want to close the gates and be like, all right, you know what? Fuck you people. We Only don't care about our you kind. Yeah. We're in. just going to, yeah. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of like, do you remember, um, I forgot his name. That, that really, fa- the guy who did um, the NPR show, uh, I forgot his name. Um, and, like after Trump won, he wrote this whole thing going like, all right, you know what? Fuck this country. Fuck all of you. Like us liberals, us liberal elites, we're going to just take a time out from life for the next four years. And we're going to go to our country homes and just fucking drink wine and live life to its fullest while you all burn your own shit down. And maybe after four years, we'll come back. That was what he wrote. <laughs> because, you know, because they were just like, so disgusted and tired of it that they just couldn't help themselves and they were just like fuck all of you people i'm going home anguish that's the end of the free portion of this podcast uh this is a little bit of a longer episode so the second part of this we're posting on uh our patreon page and if you want to listen to it and you're not a supporter, consider supporting us and go to patreon.com slash planamag and you can find the second half of the episode and a bunch of other uh, bonus content there as well. Bye.